shame invites us to hide. But we hide in distractions. We hide in busyness. We hide in pursuit of adrenaline rushes, conference to conference, retreat to retreat, moving worship song to moving worship song. We try to keep hiding instead of getting still and saying, here I am, God. Here I really am. Now, He is the only one who lacks illusions, the only one in existence who lacks illusions. So all we're really doing when we stop and say, here I am, as I am, is we're finally getting on His page. Even though we may be disillusioned with ourselves, God was never under any illusions about us. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Spiritual Formation Podcast, a place where we have conversations that lead to transformation. Before we get into today's episode, I would like to share a little bit about our guest. I will be interviewing author, speaker, and mentor, Alicia Britt Sholee. While Alicia is an accomplished writer and thinker, she's also an incredibly deeply formed individual. She just recently released her new book entitled The Night is Normal, A Guide Through Spiritual Pain. I am so excited for you to hear from Alicia today. So without further delay, let's get into it. Well, welcome to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. Today, I have with me author, speaker, and mentor, Alicia Britt Sholey. Welcome, Alicia. So good to be here, Nathan. Thank you for the opportunity. Oh, absolutely. It's such a privilege to be able to share this conversation with you. We were talking a little bit before I hit record, but I distinctly remember when I first came across uh, one of your books a few years ago. I was on vacation processing some things, and it was just such a gift. Ever since picking up that first book of yours, I've picked mm-hmm. up more and more, and I've loved reading and just engaging your voice on oh, some of these thank topics. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. So for starters, if you would, could you just take a few minutes and share a little just personally about who you are, where you're from? Would love to just uh, have our listeners learn a little bit about you. Sure. Well, I live with my amazing husband of 33 years out in the country where the stars shine brightly and the dogs bark loudly. (laughs) We live in the Ozarks of Missouri. We have three extraordinary children through the miracle of adoption. Our eldest is 26, our middle is 20, our youngest is 16. My husband and I have shaped a life around devotion to nearness with God and nearness with our kids. And the journey here has been decades long, um, but beautiful. And my uh, roots are, I was born in Las Vegas, and my family moved every year to a different city, so I remember absolutely nothing about Vegas. Uh, my, I was an atheist up until weeks before beginning my university studies, a very sincere, adamant, certain atheist, and I think that that has shaped a lot of my interaction with the scriptures, having believed there was no God to suddenly having your life interrupted and realize not only is there one, but there's one that pursues those who deny him. Right. Uh, altered. Uh, the scriptures were no longer a book, they were a voice. And so that was a very foundational for me as a new follower of Jesus in college. Yeah, that's great. And you sort of went there anyway, but would you be willing to share just a little bit more about your spiritual journey and yeah. uh, how God has sort of shaped and molded you along the way? 
Yeah, I'm happy to. Well, people come to atheism via a variety of different paths. Some come scientifically, some come through church hurt, some come through disillusionment. I came philosophically. I've always been a question asker. That was what was sacred in my family were questions. And so I very, very, very early on, Nathan, I mean, my mom said I was 10. My dad said I was nine. When I walked in after not really having any certain path that I had already adhered to, I said, you know what? I don't think there's a God. I think that religion is a poorly written play written to fill the gaps in that in the places where questions will never be answered. I don't think I should have to show up as an unpaid actor week after week. Mm. Don't think there is a God. And so it was initially very benign emotionally, uh, just sincere. It seemed to me that people created God and gods to stuff in the gaps and calm their fears, which was fine. But I considered myself a fierce realist and I preferred unanswered questions over fairy tales. So it would be later in my teens when some more pain seasoned my life, when anger began to gather around the edges of my atheism, and I started being more argumentative, more adamant, initiating more discussion, annoyed with anyone, really anyone, my Hindu English teacher or the Christian girls with bows in their head, I anybody who had the audacity to express belief in a god or gods that, quote, held power. But for a realist, when you took a look around the world, it sure didn't seem as though he or she or they were using such power to prevent pain. And so that uh, emotionally benign atheism began to sour around the edges. And then God absolutely interrupted my atheistic existence through two very unexpected gifts that were undeniable. And I'm happy to share more about that if you would like, but it was it was a season in my life where after that experience to deny God's reality, I would have had to deny my very own. Right. Uh, thank you so much for sharing, Alicia. I think that some of those very real experiences that you're describing, they come through in, in your in your books and in the things that you write about. And um, that's why I wanted you to share a little bit, because I yeah. think that context is really important. It's it's part of uh, what, what God has done in you through that journey. Well, I, I want us to just go ahead and move into some of your work. When I first reached out to you, my goal was to talk to you about a different book. But full disclaimer, I had no idea that like a week or two right after I wrote you, you had a brand new book yes. that was coming to the surface. But once I learned that, I was like, no, let's let's change directions. Um, I'm going to buy that book. Let's read it. And <laughs> let's, let's dive in here. Your most recent work is entitled mm-hmm. The Night is Normal, A Guide Through Spiritual Pain. And while yes. I would love uh, to find another time to talk about your other book that I yes. was very interested in, I, I, I'm so grateful that we get to have this conversation mm-hmm. today. To get us started on The Night is Normal, could you take a moment and give our listeners just a brief synopsis of what what is this book about? Mm-hmm. Um, share the heart of its topic yes. and why the message is so important to you. Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, in the beginning, in the very, very, very beginning, before sin entered, before the curse was released, before drama, before conflict, night was one of the original residents in the Garden of Eden. There was evening, there was morning the first day. God established the greater light to govern the day, the lesser light to govern the night, which means that in the beginning, before the drama began, 
walking with God required day faith and night faith, Hmm. which makes the night normal. Now, we have a really, really long history of preferring day, whether through oil lamps or candlesticks or now clicks and screens. We try to extend the day and shorten the night. Uh, On a neuroscience level, we're starting to realize how critical the night is for emotional and mental and physical health. And so in the book, I suggest that not only is the night normal spiritually, that the night is normal, uh, I'm sorry, not only is the night normal physically, the night is normal spiritually, that we need these seasons. So faith glitters best in the daytime, but it grows depth in the dark. Hmm. Yeah, it's so good. And, you know, as I was reading the book and really just reading your books in general, I think one of the unique strengths, this is totally just subjective, my opinion, but I, I love the creative way that you structure your books. And The Night mm-hmm. is Normal, it's constructed out of 52 short chapters that all yes. work together towards developing this deeper understanding of of how to navigate what you call disillusionment. And you actually Mm -hmm. said that word a minute ago, but can you talk a little bit about what disillusionment is and why finding ourselves in that place of disillusionment might not be as bad as it sounds? Exactly. Yes. Well, just the word itself, disillusionment, it means the negation of false ideas or ideals. We are disillusioned when something we thought was true, that we were certain about, now we realize is perhaps not true, that we are less certain about. The problem is that in our culture, we mistakenly view disillusionment as failure. And so we hit these spaces in life where we're like, oh, wow, I'm not sure that this is still true. I'm not sure what I believe. I don't feel what I used to feel. I don't know what I used to know. Uh, This isn't working the way it used to work. And these disillusioning spaces they actually are not just losses of an old illusion. They're invitations to gain a new reality. Mm. And that's where the hope is. Every single time we find ourselves walking in the dark, yes, we're losing some things, but we also are being invited to gain some things. So I try to reframe disillusionment as a friend of spiritual formation, as opposed to an enemy to be avoided at all cost. It is a natural part. We think of it, Nathan, that I am a finite being in interaction with an infinite being. I am a finite human interacting with an infinite God. And that gap in between is called mystery. No wonder there's so much we don't know. No wonder there's so much we're discovering. And this entire walk of faith is one of continuous discovery of the shedding of illusions, like the shedding of old skins and the gaining of truer, deeper, more ancient reality. Yeah. And I love the way that you describe that because if we don't have that assumption or framework going into it, then naturally the discomfort of disillusionment becomes repelling to us and we do everything we can to avoid it. But what you seem to suggest, and I love your language here in the book, um, I I highlighted this part. You actually say (laughs) disillusionment at its core is really an invitation to love. It is. It is. You know, in the daytime, if we use that metaphor, in the daytime, when we feel great and we see clearly and we know fully, we have this tendency to depend on ourselves. There is an illusion of self-leadership in the life of faith when the sun is shining brightly. In the night, we lose all that. 
we know less, we see less, we're certain of less. And so we lose the illusion of self-leadership. And we simply have to decide who we trust more. The night is an invitation to deepen our love. The night is an invitation to strengthen our trust muscles and to say that whom we're following is more important than where we're going. And I think that's what God is longing for. He is longing for a generation more consumed with their company than their scenery. And the night gives us an invitation to make that decision. Right. Yeah. And there's a way that you, rather than just keeping this generally focused throughout the book, you you sort of break these chunks yes. um, where you're talking about not just disillusionment as a whole, but yeah. how does disillusionment affect my relationship with God? How does it affect yes. my own soul? How does it affect my relationships with other people? And I think that there's something to that. I'd like to sort of ask you this question. Why do you feel that it's so important not only to make a distinct effort to understand if we're disillusioned, but also to specify where am I disillusioned? Why is it so important that we pinpoint the individual area and not just generally talk about this thing? Yes. Well, I'm going to back up just a little bit because I think I need some framework to answer that. We are living in a society where the Western church, through no intentional effort, has blurred the lines between emotion and devotion. We've blurred the lines. We have told people, do you feel God? If if you don't feel God in this amazing worship service, your feeler's broken. That you determine whether or not God is in the room through the window of your emotions. So consequently, we have a generation that understandably has a hard time knowing the difference between adrenaline and anointing. Yeah. And if I could push it a little further, a generation that has a very difficult time discerning between what feels good and what is good. Right. So backing up again, I don't think that I'm, you know, representing the leading generation. We didn't do this on purpose, but I think that in our effort to make church exciting, we forgot that Jesus never called us to be excited. He called us to follow through each day and through each night. So why do I mention that? Well, when you have the blurring between emotion and devotion, between adrenaline and anointing, between what feels good and what is good. When you hit a space like disillusionment, it just feels all bad. So surely if it feels this bad, I must have done something wrong. God must have done something wrong. The church must have done something wrong. Leadership must have done something wrong. And so as we illustrate in the book, we just bail and we continue our search for relationships that lack no disillusionment which they don't exist. (laughs) They don't don't exist for humanity. That's right. So (laughs) in the middle of that disillusioning night, it is critical that we slow down and stop running to try to outrun it, outgun it, try to fluff it up, spin it out, try to compensate for it with yet another great experience. No, we need to slow down. We need to sit in the night and we need to ask ourselves, what is it that I'm really disillusioned about? And that's where the teaching begins. Yeah. That's where it's powerful. That's where the ancients who've gone before us made their greatest movements forward in love for God. When we can slow down and say, what illusion have I lost? I guess I've lost the illusion that if I did what I was supposed to do, 
that God would grant me the desire of my heart, specifically this. Or if I served and I loved the best that I could, people would never misrepresent me in the church. Or if I kept reading the scripture, that I would not continue to be dogged and harassed by that old sinful habit. I'm losing illusions, and there's this invitation to gain reality. Yes. And obviously, you know, you talk about this a lot, but that's not a painless process. Oh, oh no. Incredibly painful. And I'd like to keep pulling that thread a little bit. So Mm -hmm. I want to quote you here. In the book, you put it this way. You say, as we are schooled by reality, we see God more accurately. However painful the loss of illusions may be, reality is a friend of intimacy with God. So if you are disillusioned, be encouraged. Honest living often leads to the humble leaving of happy but unhelpful illusions. So can you expound on that by talking about why might we be tempted to hold on to the illusion rather than pressing forward towards deeper experiences of reality? And and why why is it so painful for us? Mm. There was a movie, one of those Hallmarky kind of movies that during Christmas, my family sat down and that we watched and, you know, it's sweet and you laugh and you cry. There was one point in the movie where one of the leading roles, one of the leading characters said, the truth hurts too much. Give me back my lie. And I understood the sentiment. Yeah, They wanted to live in the illusion a little bit longer. The problem is that lies, illusions, they have no healing power. Lies cannot heal. They never have been able to. Denial has no strengthening force for faith. And so truth, reality, it stings, but it's like an antiseptic. It keeps the wounds clean and enables us to actually heal. Reality is so incredibly important because, and I loved this as a former atheist who considered myself a fierce realist, God is the ultimate realist. I mean, who could be more in touch with what is real, what is true, what is actual than God? He is the ultimate realist. So the more you and I can shed illusions and be true about reality, be honest about what is, instead of living in make-believe places in our minds, that may be soothing but cannot heal, the more we can pursue truth and reality, the more we expand in our ability to connect with the ultimate realist, with God himself. Right. I think that right there is is so helpful because that requires trust. To say, Mm -hmm. I trust in this God, this personal being enough to say that I'm actually going to rely on something that every fiber in my humanity is telling me Mm -hmm. Don't don't let go of that. That yes. sense of control, that sense of knowledge is power and, and, and whatnot. You talk about differentiating between disillusionment and despair. Mm-hmm. And I think that is also a really key piece of this. There's just too many good places to quote you. So I'm just going <laughs> to keep doing it. Okay. In chapter five, you say this distinction between disillusionment and despair is one of the primary reasons that we desperately need a viable framework for processing spiritual pain. If we do not normalize the night in the life of faith, we can easily mistake spiritual darkness for spiritual death. So could you expound on that? Yes. What's one of my greatest concerns for the next generation? We don't have a theology of the night. 
a theology of pain being a part of faith. And so when they enter into these darker spaces where it doesn't feel like it used to, they don't know what they used to, they aren't able to see as clearly as they used to. The assumption is, I've failed. Faith's failed. God has failed. Uh, so without that kind of framework, it leads us to despair. So the key difference, one of the key differences between disillusionment and despair is the existence of hope. Despair says things are awful and they won't be getting any better. It only gets worse from here. Mm. Disillusionment says this was painful. <laughs> this was a loss. I'm going to grieve the loss. But the loss means there's an invitation to a gain. There's an invitation to greater reality. There's an invitation to greater love. And that distinction is what can make all the difference in the world between maturing in faith and moving toward apostasy. And I know that's an old and powerful word, but that really is what's at stake. I feel like we have made a playground for the enemy to siphon people into apostasy through the phrase, I tried it and it didn't work. Yeah, And what they really meant is that the good feelings that I thought were indications of a good God weren't sustainable. The good feelings that meant he's with me didn't last. Right. Faith has not failed, but we have had a misconception about faith. Faith is not a feeling. Faith is more like a muscle. It grows as we exercise it, and sometimes it aches. Yeah. Yeah, and we you, you build the construct, and then, and then when the construct falls, you just bail. Yes. Um, you talk about the difference between joyful anticipation and how really our souls are looking not for information, um, but relationship. Yes. And how when we can't seem to recognize that, everything in, in our being is saying, you need more answers. You need mm-hmm. more information. Mm-hmm. But what you suggest and really what you know biblical theology would suggest time yes. and time again is that really we're looking for a relational presence of a loving god and we yes. see that from david and, and you give those yes. examples so could you mm-hmm. talk about while natural you know this this mm-hmm. desire for answers how that yes. can, that can even lead us astray at yes times. yes it can and there's about three or four different things rolling around in my mind so feel free to bring me back if i sure, sure, don't sure. don't get to but i I want to go back to something my dad gave me. Now, my dad, Nathan, was a closet atheist. I had no idea. He went to mass faithfully with my mama. That was part of his commitment that he was going to support her. And uh, I had no idea that dad was an atheist until after Jesus interrupted my life. But dad did a fantastic job revealing to me some attributes of God. And one of the ways in which he did that is ever since I was little, He would sit me down and he would say, what's the daughter thinking? What kind of questions does the daughter have? I'm an only child, but I was still called the daughter. And I would tell him, two-year-old Alicia, asking all the questions about the hippopotamus in my dream and that person that we met. And as I got older, my questions became more complex and my angst became more fierce and heading into my teenagehood and just all the injustices in the world. I mean, you can imagine thousands of questions my dad and I would process until one in the morning, two in the morning. It was just fantastic. I look back, Nathan, and I can't think of one single answer. Not one single answer. Because that wasn't the point. 
The point was that my dad was creating a safe place for me to ask questions, for me to be honest, for me to express myself, for me to be true. And all of that, what it was building wasn't information banks. It was building trust. So the freedom to ask questions builds trust. Which is why I think that culturally we have got to start encouraging people to ask more questions much earlier. Yeah. As opposed to having to process them in isolation without support. Dad gifted that to me. So when Jesus interrupted my atheistic existence and somebody came along and they said, Oh, by the way, now God is your father. I'm like, Oh, fantastic. I can ask him anything I want to. I can bring all my angst, all my doubt, all of my questions. And that freedom builds trust. So I think that that is really one of the critical things that I keep inviting people to. And we start with this, as you mentioned, the substance of joyful anticipation. Uh, and there's a, a drawing. It's almost like a circle with three different, uh, three different pieces. So we begin with joyful anticipation. We're like, Oh, wow, this is fantastic. This is wonderful. Whether it's God, whether it's a new person you've met, whether it's a new job. This is going well. I feel great. And we assume that that feel great is a deposit on always feeling great. Yeah. And then we loop back around and we hit a disillusioning space where the feelings aren't sustainable, where we don't feel great. We don't know as much. We are a little confused. And this is where our key attribute that we need to bring into disillusionment is honesty. Bring your questions to God in that place. I don't care how brutal it feels. I don't care how disrespectful it sounds. God's really rather secure. He can handle it. So honesty is a friend of intimacy with God. When disillusioned, we need to become brutally honest with God about what we feel we're losing. And it builds our trust muscles to follow him, not downward into Baal, but upward into love. Yeah, you're spot on. And in our Western form of Christianity at times, we, we've got to get back to some of the biblical reminders. Like we look at the Psalms and most of the time when we're quoting Psalms, it's the one third of the Psalms that are Psalms of praise instead of the two thirds <laughs> of the Psalms, which are laments and yes. crying out to God yes. in pain. And I think that just a normal part of your faith journey. Mm-hmm. Um, That's right. God is, God is going to meet you just as much in, in the the failure as he does in the success and the darkness yes. as he does in the light. And what a freeing mm-hmm. concept, as you mentioned yes. with, with your earthly father, being able to just process what is happening in your life and not have to stop and think, oh, is this okay? Like, am I allowed yes. to do this? That's right. To edit, to edit ourselves. When we think about a God who is infinite, no beginning, no end, and a God who is omnipresent everywhere all at the same time. So a God who's infinite and a God who's omnipresent is equally present in every moment. There's not more of God right here while we're having this podcast than there is when I'm picking up my dog's mess. Right. There isn't less of God right here while we're having this podcast than there is when I'm grieving in a closet. Our greatest shout doesn't thicken him. Our greatest doubt doesn't thin him. So every single moment of life that we're gifted with is an opportunity to be with an infinite, 
omnipresent, profoundly attentive Savior. And what that does is it levels all movements. It helps us know that the stage is not more holy than the dishwasher. Yeah. It levels all moments, but then it elevates all moments because they're equally full of potential to intentionally be with our God. That's so well said. It does challenge us to sort of think critically about what am I placing my hope in? Mm-hmm. Um, because from time to time, uh, I mean, I can look at my own life. I'm sure you can as well. Oh, I actually, I actually wasn't putting my hope necessarily in God. Mm-hmm. I, I might have been hoping in what God might do for me or how he yes. might change this reality or adjust my course this way. And if we're doing that, it's painful to realize, oh, I'm I'm not actually hoping in God. Mm-hmm. I'm hoping in what I desire from God. Yes. It's painful and it's hard. Yes. But sometimes formation uh, happens only by going squarely through the one mm-hmm. thing that we wish we could avoid. And Jesus modeled that, right? And in, in the yes. garden, I think if nothing else, it should cause us to say, if our model is Jesus, yes. if he can look at God and say, hey, I don't want to drink this, but I will. Yes. And he comes through um, the other side through resurrection. Then you know what? We can trust that even if darkness is is a long journey, there is mm-hmm. hope in the resurrection life of Jesus Christ. Yes. So, and I'm so glad you brought up that example because that to me is one of my favorite spaces in all of scripture. Yeah. The Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus' self-described soul is sorrowful and troubled, overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He, he actually inspired the writers to remember that. And so he was tapping them on the shoulder saying, don't leave this out. Tell them, tell them in the night how I felt. Tell them how I described myself. But today, if our soul is sorrowful and troubled, we think we've messed up somewhere. We've taken a wrong turn. There's something we missed. But for Jesus, a troubled soul wasn't the sign a failure, a troubled soul wasn't the sign of a faith deficit. A troubled soul was the sign of obedience in the making. And we need to give ourselves permission in the night to have troubled souls as we are obeying. And honestly, filling the real call. I Jesus's call was singular. It was follow, which makes it all about relationship with him. He leads, we follow. Yeah. Follow is all relational. And anytime we try to reduce faith, anytime we try to reduce the spiritual to mathematical, we're in trouble. Because anytime we try to operate out of equations in faith, we're gutting faith of relationship. And if faith is anything, it's relational. Follow is the call. Follow is the call. And that call sounds in the night in a much deeper way. We respond to it in the night at a much deeper level, a level that really is love. I don't, as Basileya Schlink said so beautifully, I don't understand you, but I trust you. Yeah. That's what we whisper in the night. Yeah, it's so good. I think probably it's the best illustration I've heard on this. And it was one that you used in chapter 10, where you talked about how there are some flowers, no matter how beautiful the sun is on a spring day, Mm -hmm. they're not going to bloom. Mm-hmm. And how those particular flowers, it's not sunlight that that sparks their beauty. It's mm-hmm. moonlight in the darkness. Yes. And as I read that, um, it really just brought me back to James 1 of, 
you know, consider it joy mm-hmm. when difficulties of all kind come your way. And, and I just would like, before we wrap up, just a little time with you talking about that, because our natural bent for most followers of Jesus is we're going to try to avoid all those painful realities that we Sure. Have. So how do we slowly make that shift from, I'm just going to avoid this to saying, God, whatever you want to birth in me right now, um, I may not be excited about it, but I'm going to trust you in it. How do we slowly make that shift? Yes. Honestly, I think that uh, staring at Jesus is one of the most powerful things we can do to prepare ourselves for the choices we have to make in the night. I, I'm i a huge fan of my library is filled with books and I love great movies and I obviously love podcasts. And But one of the most important things we can do to prepare ourselves to choose well in the night is to gaze at Jesus, return to the Word, stare at Him in the Gospels. It was one of the very first studies and perhaps the most often returned to studies of my entire life, Nathan. My first mentor, she had me gaze at Jesus all throughout the Gospels, what did he do? What did he say? What emotions did he show? How did he interact with people? I simply fell in love with Jesus. So captivating, so endless, so wise, so merciful, so just, so fantastically complex, enough for me to explore for the rest of my life. I think that as we gaze at Jesus, What happens in the night then is we're able to say this, Jesus, you're worth it. You're worth it. I want you more than I want healing. Jesus, I want you more than I want knowledge. Jesus, I want you more than I want resolution to that conflict. Jesus, I want you more than I want success. Jesus, I want you more than I want affirmation. Jesus, I want you. And he really becomes that pearl of great price. He becomes the center of our faith. We spend so much time, Nathan, looking over Jesus' shoulder for something else. Looking past him for something more fulfilling, for something more beautiful, what for something more wise. We're so incredibly distracted from him. So, staring at Jesus, gazing at him in the word, I think is one of the wisest things we can do to prepare ourselves to be people who can follow him, not just in the the daytime when our faith is glittering in full sun, but through the nights. That's so powerful, Alicia. It really is. It's not, it's not one of those things you learn and then move on from. It's Mm -hmm. the constancy of because we are easily distracted people yes, uh, and it's easy to get sidetracked with the things that we constantly are, are giving our attention to. You have other relationships, you have other needs, you have other stuff. And if we're not taking the real clock time to be with Jesus, then I think it happens even more quickly. I love the language there. We're looking over Jesus's shoulder past him for something else. He's there yes. in the mix. Mm-hmm. He's not the focal point. And I think that that's beautiful imagery of how we can see this. I have so many questions I'd love to ask you. I want to be respectful of your time. So I'm going to ask you one more. <laughs> okay. And then we can wrap up and I'll let you go. But 
there I don't remember which chapter it is off the top of my head, but there was a point where you begin to unpack some of the implications that you mentioned earlier regarding the night and how it was there from the very beginning and mm-hmm. even Adam and Eve, their their presence mm-hmm. in the garden. And I remember specifically you were talking about, you know, when when God would get up and he would walk mm-hmm. among the garden in the cool of the day and how that that sound brought in one instance intimacy as Adam and Eve would walk with him. Mm-hmm. But then once sin had entered the world, that same sound of his presence walking in the garden, it caused them to hide. Mm-hmm. Yes. And I wanted to talk a little bit about the role of hiding mm-hmm. when it comes to spiritual pain, because yes. I know from my own life in my darkest seasons, those are the seasons where it was most difficult to pray. It was most difficult to stay engaged with the spirit in scripture, in worship, and on and on and on. What are what are some of the roadblocks that keep us from, you know, gaining reality and shedding illusions mm-hmm. as we walk through those times where we just don't really feel like being with God or even it's it's just shame of I, I'm mm-hmm. actively hiding from God. How how do yes. we get out of that? Yes. Yeah, that's a great question. And there is a whole section, especially on this specific topic what we're talking about is self-protection. And self-protection, we don't need to villainize it. It has its place. If a bear is chasing me, I'm going to self-protect. If uh, you know, if I'm about to see an accident that I'm about to be in, I'm going to brace. We, If I've been in an interaction with somebody where they're toxic and they've been abusive, just walking into the same room, uh, my heart rate's going to increase. I'm, I'm ready. I'm prepared. Self-protection has a place in a fallen world that has dangers. But self-protection with God, this is where that hiding that is so, uh, reminds us so much of what Adam and Eve did comes into play. That, you know, they, they hid themselves because they were afraid. They hid themselves. They were clothed because they were suddenly aware of something they weren't aware of before. Shame was their tailor. And this is what happens with us sometimes, especially when we're disillusioned with ourselves. Like, why can't I gain traction in that area of my life? Why do my thoughts keep going to that place? Why can't I seem to release that person from having hurt me? Why can't I seem to have growth in this area of my life? And shame invites us to hide. But we hide in distractions. We hide in busyness. We hide in pursuit of adrenaline rushes, conference to conference, retreat to retreat, moving worship song to moving worship song. We try to keep hiding instead of getting still and saying, here I am, God. Here I really am. Now, he is the only one who lacks illusions, the only one in existence who lacks illusions. So all we're really doing when we stop and say, here I am, as I am, is we're finally getting on his page. Even though we may be disillusioned with ourselves, God was never under any illusions about us. He knows that we're dust. He knows that we have made mistakes. He knows that we've sinned. He's already seen all of our sin, birth to death, on the cross, and he's made provision. And so what can help us in those moments when we want to hide 
is to see Jesus with outstretched arms, even to visualize it. He already knows. And the safest place for me is with the one who not only loves, but loves in the context of already knowing. That's love. That's love in reality. And God is the one, the only one who can offer us that in full. Again, so well said. Um, So appreciate your passion for this. And I just want to encourage everyone listening, please go pick up a copy of this book, The Night is Normal. If you find yourself in a place where you're you're needing to dig a little deeper, or if you you know someone else who um, is going through it and they need sort of a roadmap of how do I navigate this well with Jesus, just want to encourage you strongly to go and pick up a copy of this book. Alicia, thank you so much for taking the time and, and having this conversation with me. I've so deeply enjoyed talking to you and your contributions here are incredible. So thank you. Oh, thank you. It's been a real joy, Nathan. Thank you for listening to the Spiritual Formation Podcast. We have conversations that lead to transformation. For more information about the show or share it with others, please visit rss.com slash podcast slash SFP for a direct link. If you found today's episode helpful, please consider leaving us a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening through. Thank you.